Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, for our eagle-eyed or maybe eagle-eared listeners who noticed that there was a new intro last week. Yes, we have re-recorded it finally, mainly due to the fact that we had to take out the 20 minutes weekly, which <laughs> we've long graduated from. Right. So as you're aware, we've interrupted our series on the Rambam, which we're in the middle of. We did one and two, and we're about to do part three. We interrupted it with a three-part series on Yishmael versus Yisrael. So just a quick note on that series. Our inbox has literally been full. People from all over the spectrum, particularly in fields of education and Rabonus, they have found that part one and two is necessary listening, to quote some of the emails we got in their classrooms and kahilas, and the response has been overwhelming. So Rabbi Hirsch, you clearly got through to a lot of people. Please keep spreading. As we said, there's a lot of misinformation, and more importantly, there's a lot of confusion. And if these episodes can clear it up, then that's the job done. We would like to now complete the Rambam podcast today, although we will probably have one further talk on the situation in Eretz Yisrael, likely to be next week, but we'll see. So as a brief recap, we've had a couple of weeks break after all. Last time we looked at the Rambam's years in Egypt. We looked at his writing of the Halachic Mishnah Torah. We looked at a lot of his chuvas, as well as his personal life, his marriage, and the loss of his brother. What are we going to be looking at this week? So this week, which, by the way, is standalone, even if you haven't heard parts one and two, although obviously it puts a picture together. This week, we will look at his third major sefer. We will look at the politics of his time and the Rambam's demeanor and that which transpired after his death, both immediately in 1204 and many centuries later. But before that, I wanted to look at his most famous letter, the Igeres Taimon, the letter to the Jews of Yemen written in the early 1170s. And the Jews there were doubly confronted by, by pressures. Externally, the non-Jewish Muslim government wanted to impose Islam on the population. But internally, a Jew arose claiming to be Mashiach, and the faith of the community was at stake. So how did the Rambam get involved in all of this? Well, he probably knew about it, but he got a letter from Rav Yaakov, who was the son of Rav Nassan al-Fayumi, spelling out the situation. And the Rambam understands the, the gravity of the issues, and he responded in a way that could be read by all Jews there, learned or otherwise. He writes in Arabic, and he tells the recipients to, to teach his message to all. And on the first point, in other words, forced apostasy, he responded, as he had to the Jews of Morocco, that they should convert externally, temporarily. But regarding the internal threat and the confusion, so he assures them that their trials will end and that a messianic period will yet come and that this trial would pass. And people 
shouldn't jump to half-baked conclusions based on, on signs or ideas. But interestingly, he writes that if this pretender continued, he should be put to death by the Jews because otherwise he will cause the non-Jews to turn against the Jewish community. And this letter is one of his best-known writings, and it endeared him to the Taimani, to the Yemenite Jews forever, and they included his name in Kaddish. What does that mean? Well, in other words, in, in Kaddish, we say that HaKadosh Baruch's presence should be magnified in our days, and they added ben Maimon in the middle of Kaddish. And that's until today? I don't believe so. No, right. I doubt it. Well, no, by definition not, because the Rambam's no longer alive. Yes. Could but have said we, that was a trick question, right. but no. Uh, but we know from the Cairo Geniza that this edition isn't a unique uh, privilege, because they did the same with other great leaders. But their acceptance of the Rambam's code of halacha over that of the Shulchan Aruch a couple of hundred years later, throughout the centuries, was highly significant and, and unusual. Now, interestingly, after the episode was all over, he wrote, the Rambam wrote to rabbis in southern France, in Montpellier, that this false messiah was eventually caught by the ruler of Yemen, who demanded or asked for a sign, a miracle from this pretender that he was indeed, you know, the Jewish redeemer. So he tells the king, cut off my head and I will continue to live. And to basically paraphrase what the Rambam wrote, so the king did and he didn't. <laughs> so now 20 years later, the Rambam completed his last famous work, the Murnavuchim, Guide to the Perplexed, which was written in the form of a letter to his Talmud, to his student, Rabbi Yosef ben Yehuda, who had actually originally lived in Fustat with the Rambam. And the language that he wrote in was Judeo-Arabic. And that meant, of course, that those who didn't speak Arabic, the, the Ashkenazim or Chachmei Provence, like Rabbi Yosef of Lunil, could not access it. So for them, it would be eventually translated basically after the passing of the Rambam. Now, he writes this no earlier than 1178, but it was probably in the 1180s, and he completes it by 1191 when he's 53. And this is therefore the only one of his three major works which is written when the responsibility for making a parnosa for a livelihood rested entirely on his own shoulders, and his time was more limited, as, as we will soon see. Why did he write the Marina Wilhelm? Well, okay, fine. So everybody knows or everybody assumes it's a sort of a book of philosophy. But in his introduction, literally the very beginning, the Rambam writes that he particularly wants to explain that which the uh, the Mishnah at the beginning of the second paragraph of Chagiga refers to, well, the two aspects, Maise Bereshis and Maise Merkova, how the world was created and how God is perceived the God's running of the world, and they are normally understood as a particularly Kabbalistic ideas. So he is writing about fundamentals, and it's in three parts. The first section, he deals with how we understand God, and specifically the issue of anthropomorphism, the idea of the, the hand of God, the eye of God, in the other sections, he gives explanations for the mitzvahs, in other words, Tameha mitzvahs, which the Sefer Chinuch often adapts and quotes. 
but he stresses in the introduction to the guide that it is not intended for the ordinary run of mankind. It's not even intended for uh, students of Torah who don't need to look beyond the halachic and Talmudic areas. The Moira is written instead for a religious individual, Shekvanikva Beliboy, who has who believes fully in the truth of Torah, for who Sholem he is of of you know a good moral character, and he has studied philosophy. Now the Rambam means this in a positive way; it means there are some people who are naturally drawn to philosophical inquiry, and now as a result of these areas, they are encountering contradictions where the apparent meaning of the words particularly from passages in Tanakh, seems to conflict with intellect. And the Rambam was intent to lead this type of person out of their their bewilderment and perplexity. But he is not interested in the average individual who he describes as potentially going around in darkness. So that's who the mirror is written for, unlike the way it is literally translated. And there are two interesting things to note. Firstly, his Mishnah Torah, the halachic work, is an unbelievable example of clarity, of structure, of precision. Yet the Rambam writes the Merenavuchim later in his life in a confusing manner in order to restrict the philosophical insight to readers who are sufficiently prepared. And, you know, if you listen to Rav Aaron Lopiansky, he has more than 100 classes just on this sefer, and he refers to the deliberate lack of structure. And therefore, even though... After he'd written the Mishnah Torah in Hebrew, the Rambam expresses regret that he didn't write his commentary of the Mishnah in Hebrew. He nonetheless returns to writing in Arabic for the Guide to the Perplexed because it had a different audience. It served a different purpose. However, to assure the listeners that this is very real safer, it's not, you know, some Aristotelian approach to um, translating Torah. To do so, we only need to look at the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, in the very opening chapter. In fact, the opening paragraph of the first chapter of Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah quotes the Merenavuchim at length. And in the early 20th century, there were two great rabbinic leaders in the same city in Dvinsk, in Latvia, before the war. Both were considered to be geniuses, the Rogotrova, who was more Hasidish, and the Meshachochmol, or the Ersmech, who was a Litvak. The Rogotrova wrote a commentary on the Rambam's Mirnavuchim, and the Meshachochmol used to learn the Mirnavuchim every year, specifically during the Aserismate Truva. So you're saying it was, it was definitely accepted by the leading greats of Kalalisrael? Well, it Some of them. went through a period during the times of the Rishonim of debate, and uh, there were some who were very strongly against the mirror because, as we've explained in the series on Provence, the concepts that could be taken from it and could be taken to an extreme, which the Rambam was never referring to. And nowadays, because it's a work of philosophy and we're not really drawn to philosophy, so far fewer people learn it. But those that do definitely, you know, see in it the Rambam. So moving on from the Mona Vuchim, you mentioned earlier he dealt with politics. Yes, he acted for the community in many ways, at times attempting to protect them 
from those that were looking for for power, Jews, non-Jews, and sometimes it was a very real threat to him and to the community. At one stage, there was an individual called Zutta, who becomes the head of the Jewish communities of Egypt, in fact, more than once. Zutta was a, a nickname, a derogatory nickname, conferred on him by his enemies, because it means little or small. He called himself Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. And he bribed rulers for the privilege of office and for the right to collect taxes, which he did as an autocrat. And he bought his way into office for 200 dinners a year. And he remained in power first time round for four years. Although eventually the Rumbum, we are told, overcame this Zutta and restored the law to its former state and brought the beginning of salvation. But what did he do? Do we know what he done? Well, we know he was very involved in, in what was going on. What exactly he did? No, we have no insight. We do know that eventually, at a later date, he attempted to get into power again. This time the sultan was honest, wouldn't accept bribes, so he changed tactics and informed the sultan that there were some Jews involved in treachery to the government. And they were investigated and the accusations were found to be true and it uh, rebounded on, on the Jewish community as a whole. And as a result, he was able to resume power for two years. But eventually, again, it was shown that he was hated by the people and he was removed a second time and subsequent to that the Rambam gave a sort of a description of this Zuta whose real name was Abu Zikri in response to a query by Rav Pinchas ben Meshulam who was a French rabbi who had emigrated to Egypt in 1185 and he wrote to the Rambam asking about, you know, this Abu Zikri who had taken over in wickedness and, and cruelty. And the reason this Rav wanted to know was because Zuta at the time was living in Alexandria. And at that time already, the Rambam is able to reassure him that, and I quote, he fears the most insignificant member of the community. He has no one left to support him. Don't mind him and let not the words of transgressors alarm you. Now, interestingly, in that letter, we saw how the Rumbum dealt with opponents. It's worthwhile hearing in his own words, uh, the Rumbum's advice for dealing with people generally when a person is in office, is in, you know, an authority. And the Rumbum says, and I quote, When I was your age, I suffered more intensely from the emotions that affect you now. I would employ my tongue and pen without restraint against those who disagreed with me. But thanks to the passage of time and experience and through study, this has changed. And he assures Rav Pinchas that for years now, he has never paid attention to rumours and you know doesn't react, even when he knows that someone went as far as to curse him. And he says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that should a colleague or an adversary rebut what I have said, and the rebuttal be correct, it makes me happy. I'm glad that he called to my attention something that I overlooked. And he then goes on, he defines guidelines for communal leaders, for judges, that the leader of a community cannot be domineering, and he has to sort of wield authority with humility. He has to be patient with them, as Moshe Rabbeinu was. Although, when people challenged him about Torah matters, he would defend the Torah, 
never himself. He says, out of self-dignity, I do not answer fools, because the rabbis have told us that a Baruch Hu undertakes to defend a scholar's honour. But he could be quite sharp in response when it was important to dismiss a challenge to halacha, to Torah. Give you a couple of quotes that he wrote under these circumstances. One was, I was genuinely amazed that he could speak such ridiculous and disgraceful nonsense. He writes about somebody else that he is possessed of little knowledge. And about a third instance where there was a custom to do something, he says the usage insisted upon by a certain religious official was a custom of ignoramuses. I can only imagine what he was like before he, uh, to <laughs> quote him, uh, right. changed. So he was, in effect, the Rambam was the god Lador, the absolute authority of his time. In theory. But as Jews know, rabbis are never unchallenged, even the Rambam. And in fact, even as late as the mid-1190s, so towards the end of his life, he's been in in Cairo by then for, for 30 years, he could give instructions how to handle an issue and nevertheless be informed subsequently that not one thing was done in accordance with his instructions. So, you know. Now, we also have a very sweet testimony. There is a letter in which somebody sort of reports having delivered a written message to a man of aristocratic status called Ramosha, whose son was called Rab Avram, and this person had taken his own son along uh, to, uh, you know, on the errand to deliver the message. And the two of them had been received in so warm and friendly a fashion, he writes, that a book would not suffice to give a full account of what occurred. Refreshments had been served, and Ramesha had himself eaten lemon cakes. <laughs> Ramesha had then invited the visitor to sit down for a private conversation, while Rabbeinu Avram amused the boy, and as the two were leaving, Ramesha called the boy back to exchange a final, final pleasantry, <laughs> which is just priceless. <laughs> and one of the most famous letters written by the Rambam, is the one he writes to Rabbi Shmuel Ibn Tibbon in 1199, because this letter contains, firstly, some of the Rambam's own guidelines for how to translate the Hebrew of different parts of the Merenavuchim, and it offers also a, a fascinating insight into the Rambam's daily and weekly routine. Now, this Rabbi Shmuel Ibn Tibbon was the son of the translator Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Tibon, who had translated both the Chovas Halavovas from Arabic and the Kuzari. And his son, who followed in his footsteps, was now chosen to translate the Merenavuchim. And he expresses a desire to visit the Rambam. So the Rambam, who responds, and this is five years before the Rambam's death, writes to him of his timetable. And I quote, I mean, it's obviously a, uh, a translation he didn't write in English. I live in Fustat, whereas the Sultan resides in Cairo. My duties to the Sultan are heavy. I am obliged to visit him every day, early in the morning. And when he or any of his children or concubines are indisposed, I cannot leave Cairo, but must stay during most of the day in the palace. Hence, as a rule, even if nothing unusual happens, I don't return to Fustat until the afternoon. Then I am famished. But I find the hallway filled with people, Jews and non-Jews, nobles and common people, judges, policemen, friends and enemies who await my return. 
I dismount from my animal, wash my hands, and entreat them to bear with me while I partake of the only proper meal I eat in 24 hours. Then I go to attend to my patients and write prescriptions and directions for their ailments. Patients go in and out until nightfall, and sometimes until two hours or more into the night. I converse with them and prescribe for them, even while lying down from sheer fatigue. When night falls, I'm so exhausted that I can hardly speak. And in consequence of this, no Jew can converse with me except on Shabbos. On that day, the Kehillah comes to me after davening, when I instruct them as to the proceedings during the next week. We learn together until noon. Some of them return and learn with me after Mincha until nightfall. And in this manner, I spend the days. And I have related to you only a part of what you would see if you would visit me. Yeah, she wasn't tempted to visit until now. Right. Was this a letter that is in Sfarim or was this part of the Geniza? Where was this found? So there is echoes of it in the Geniza, but it's because he wrote it that it was preserved. Because the Ibn Tibbon family... Like you said in part one and two, just the fact that we have such a deep insight into one of the Roshonim's lives, and especially him, is mind-blowing. Yep. So what you've just described, what he described himself in his letter, is that he barely had time to learn. When was he learning yep. Torah? It's a fact that many people don't realize when they assess how much he wrote. You know, if you were to sum up his life, he lived in three different countries. He saw his country of birth overrun by the Almohads when he was 10 or 11, forced into exile. He then nevertheless achieves enormous greatness in Torah. He writes probably the most significant halachic work of the Rishonim. He writes two other majors for him. He writes medical works. He writes responsa and letters, all in 67 years. So, yes, he achieved an enormous amount through adversity. And he then passed away on the 20th of Teves, which in the year 4965, which is December 1204. And interestingly, of all that he had achieved, however you want to put it, the Rambam wrote a letter to a colleague in Egypt when his son Avram, to become Rabbeinu Avram and take over from him, was only 15. And the Rambam writes... In this world, I am only comforted by two things. My son, who is humble and learned and will become Be'ezus Hashem great, and... And what? Well, we don't have the rest of the letter. We can only speculate <laughs> really? what, the what the second thing is that he takes great comfort from. What a shame. Yep. Wow. Okay, I, th I guess that, in a way, that even from that letter alone, it sort of sums up his life almost yep. better than any anyone else can. Right. He summed it up himself. So where was he buried? I mean, we know that his cave is supposed to be in Tavaria. I yep. mean, with, uh, I've been there myself. But I remember when I was going there, I actually asked some people before I visited, and it seemed a bit hazy as to as to was he buried there. It seems like it's quite Mukabalias, but how certain are we of this? Because I know that when it comes to the Ramban, who lived probably around the same time, even yeah. though he died in Eretz Stroll, we, we don't know exactly where his cave is. That so is true, yes. Okay, so the Rambam is reputed to have said, al no tikbereni b'mitzrayim, please don't bury me in Egypt. And given that the 20th of Tavis, when he passed away, is the week of Parshas Vayechi, which is when Yaakov Ovinu says those words for the first time. So, you know, from that perspective, I guess it makes sense. And that, therefore, his body was taken to Tveria in Eretz Israel. 
In fact, the earliest source that identifies his caver as being in Tveria is in 1258, because it's mentioned in the 13th century by Ravyakov of Paris, who kept a record of his travels through Eretisrael and neighboring countries, and he published it under the name of Elemasais. He was, in fact, a fundraiser for Rabichil of Paris. So we have it already a short while after the Rambam's Ptira. And then in the 14th century, Ravishtori Haparchi of Provence, who wrote Kafta Vaferach, which also describes the geography of Eretz Israel. He also mentions that the Rambam is buried in Tveria. And bear in mind that Ravishtori spent time in Egypt before he went to Eretz Israel. And he met descendants of the Rambam, and they don't say anything about the Rambam being buried in Egypt. And wasn't the Arizal, or his Talmidim, didn't they go around to Eretz Yisrael and apparently authenticate a lot of where they were They authenticated a lot of the Tanoim. I think it is likely that the Rambam, I mean, it was in the area, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. We do also know that his grandson, Rabbeinu David, who was also the Nugid in Mitzrayim. So Rabbeinu Avram took over, the Rambam's son, and then his grandson, Rabbeinu David. He was also buried in Tveria. And in fact, about 100 years ago, I think it was early 1930s, the Matseva of his grandson was found next to the Rambam. And it is even possible, though by no means certain, that the Rambam's father was buried there. Now, there is mention of a location next to the Rambam's shul in Egypt that is suggested as the Rambam's burial site. But even if this was the case, it wouldn't be unusual. In other words, for him to have been first buried in Egypt immediately after he died, until the arrangements were made to transport his remains to Eretz Yisrael. And in fact, Rav Yosef Sambori, who was a 17th century Egyptian Talmud Chacham, a scholar, he records that the Rambam was first buried near his base of Medrash, and then the remains were transported to to, to Tveria. And this practice of of doing so, of transporting the remains, was common enough in Egypt. The Rambam himself was sent a question. It's Truva Shin Ayin Base, 372. He was asked by one of his students called Sadia about a poor man who was planning to take a trip to Eretz Yisrael, and he had disinterred his parents who were buried in Egypt in order to rebury their bones in Yerushalayim. And the Talmud asks the Rambam about the permissibility of doing so. And the Rambam not only says yes, but he says that this person acted very well, and this is the practice of great sages of uh, Klal Yisrael. And we have similar truvas from Egypt written in the 16th century by the Radvaz. I find it very odd that the most famous man in Egypt, possibly the Middle East, possibly the world in the, in, in the Jewish world, that there wouldn't be very clear records of his burial. Why it's almost a debated fact. Okay, so first of all, we have to understand that there's definitely no record that the Rambam was buried in Egypt. That's very odd, no? In other words, Jews have lived continuously in Egypt till, whatever, till the 1950s for sure, since the death of the Rambam. And it would be, I mean, it's almost impossible, but definitely highly unusual that this community wouldn't have kept a record of the burial of such a tzaddik. And their tradition is that he was always buried in Eretz Yisrael. But what we do have to understand is that Tveria becomes abandoned in the 15th century. Very few Jews lived in the area at all. 
um, the area of the Basic Forest, where even Tanoim are potentially buried, become a grazing ground for, for sheep of the local Arabs, and the area deteriorated. And centuries later, almost probably nearly 500 years, years later, in 1912, the Arabs were given permission to build outside the old city of Tiveria for the first time, that they could live outside by, by the Turks, by the Ottoman Empire. And they started building into the cemetery. And at that point, the Rabonim of Tiveria convinced Baron Rothschild in 1914, in fact, in May, to help preserve and fence off the cemeteries. And he sent them 35,000 francs. Um, and so Tiveria was never, until the time where the Talmidei Habal Shemtov came in the early 1800s, it was never a place where people lived and the whole place fell into ruin. So there wouldn't be reliable records. So it wouldn't be verified by any local yes. sources, right? Yeah. Now, famously on the Rumbum's cave, it says, Mi Moshe ad Moshe, from Moses to Moses, I from Moshe Rabbeinu to the Rambam, there was never anyone like him. Except originally on the cave, it didn't actually say that. It said that he was Mivchar Enushi, the choicest of people. So who added that poetic line? Don't know. Yes, I mean, maybe after they buried the Ramon in the 1500s and 1572, and that's what it says on Ramon's cave, referring to the line from the Rumbum to the Ramon. Mm -hmm. Although by then, I guess, if they're going to put it on this epitaph, they must have had it in mind already. It, we don't know, but as I say, this is not a place where there were a lot of records being kept. Now, I did want to add an important note, which might otherwise leave many Ashkenazim listening to this podcast, thinking to themselves, well, you know, it's interesting to listen to the Rife of the Rumbum, but it isn't relevant to our way of life because we're non-Svardim. You could not be more wrong because of the many halachas that Ashkenazim follow the ruling of the Rumbum, I will point to two, both because they are well-known although we didn't realise necessarily that it was the Rumbum who was behind them, and because of the sort of flip over on both sides, from Svaradi to Ashkenazi and vice versa. We've got Hanukkah coming our way very soon. Ashkenazi households have everyone light their own menorah each night, adding, you know, going from one to eight, as the Ramah, the Ashkenazi part of Shulchan Aruch, tells us to do. And therefore, you know, in theory, you could have dozens of lights burning by the time you get to the end of Yontov. Not so the Svaradim. The Shulchan Aruch instructs them that only the head of the household lights and no one else. Interesting to note, the Svaradim are following Toisvus, who is the Ashkenazi medieval commentary, whereas the Ashkenazim are following the Rambam. Worth bearing in mind six weeks from now. <laughs> and let's move to a weekly event. You take your boiling soup off your blech or hot plate on Shabbos. Can you put it back on again? I'm not going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> so for Svardim, you can only do it if the soup is still boiling. Yadse ledes. For Ashkenazim, it suffices that it is warm. Svardim are following Rashi. Ashkenazim are following the Rambam. Fascinating. So, yeah. <laughs> I had mentioned in part one, that around the world, the Rumbum, you know, sort of has countries uh, having made stamps with his face on. Spain itself, let's get back to as we end this third part on the Rumbum. So we mentioned earlier there's a statue in Cordoba. But in 1935, they did what was probably the strangest thing. 
there's a poster. Poster you can still find online, I believe. The poster has a black bull hurtling towards the matador's red cape. And above the names of the two bullfighters is the word Maimonides. <laughs> and as the text of the poster says, a great bullfight was set to take place in the Cordoba Bullring on the 31st of March, 1935, at four o'clock in the afternoon to celebrate the 800th birthday, birthday of the Rumbum of Moses Maimonides. And they, you know, they reopened the old Cordoba synagogue. They had a Jewish religious service there, which was the first time since 1492, by the way. And the because then the entire Jewish population was expelled from Spain and the chief rabbi of France said a special prayer for the president of the Spanish Republic and, and for Spain. This is before the, um, the the wars there. And the bullfight was part of a five day state festival in celebration of the life of the rumbum. And I came across an account written in 1957 by a university professor called Chaim Raphael, who recalls his visit to Spain in 1935. He talks about a speech from the chief rabbi of Belgrade, where there were hundreds of participants. And I will quote, he spoke in Spanish. And when he finished, they were all on their feet, clapping, shouting until finally the mayor raised his hand for silence. And then the doors at the side of the hall were flung open and we, which obviously included many Jews, moved hungrily towards the heavily laden tables. The rabbi was escorted to the first table. The Spaniards had prepared a magnificent banquet of shellfish, lobsters, crabs, shrimps <laughs> and other delicacies from Malacca because it was 500 years since they had officially dealt with the Jews and maybe they remembered that uh, Jews can't eat meat with the Christians so they might have to settle for fish. Called doing half your homework. <laughs> right. Well, there's probably no one they could really ask. And I will end with two things. And do what? we know why it was specifically a bullfight in his memory? they were doing all these cultural things to right. celebrate in Spain so this was you know what they felt was Brilliant. the way to do it it's as good as a shellfish end with two things one is a tacona made by the rumbum for shawls and you see from it how attuned he was it is quoted by the Radvaz, who was the rabbi in Egypt 350 years after the rumbum and by the rumbum Sad Rabbeinu Avram to cancel the saying of there being both a silent Shmona Esrei and a repetition that there's only one, which you say aloud. What had caused this was the behavior of the people in Shul. There were those in Shul who were familiar with the silent prayer and could recite it off by heart. Because remember, in the 1180s, there are no sidurim, they haven't been printed. But there were those in Shul who were waiting for the repetition. Either they would listen to the repetition and say Amen, or, and, and that's how they would fulfill their obligation, or they would say it with the chazan because the chazan was saying it aloud word for word. But what it meant was that those who had already prayed during the silent part would turn to their neighbors during the repetition and they would talk. Not only that, but they would engage in conversation those who had not yet davened. So the Rambam said, no, there's only going to be one. There's only one prayer. So those who know how to daven will be occupied because they'll be praying to themselves. And those who need to listen will also be occupied and anyway, they'll have no one to talk to. Of course, this could never happen today. 
And the Rambam adds another reason, and that is to prevent the existing Chalul Hashem, desecration of God's name, because non-Jews are saying that Jews don't take prayer seriously. So he made this innovation. Um, it was only done for Shachris and Musaf of Shabbos and Yontif, but in a weekday when you had smaller crowds and more knowledgeable people, they left it unchanged. And it was followed unanimously in the next generations until 1539, after which time there were different customs. Finally, in Fez today, there is a place called the uh, building called the House of the Clock, which is a 14th century building, which is also sometimes referred to as the House of Maimonides due to a legend which claims that that was the house where he lived. But no evidence at all. I guess not. No, probably not. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. That wraps up our Rambam series. We have a special surprise coming out tomorrow. We have an exclusive clip. I know you all constantly wonder about the breadth of Rabbi Hirsch's repertoire and, more importantly, the reliability of everything he says. You know, throughout these 102, 103 episodes, we've covered immensely complex eras and figures in history. And the question begs itself, how does Rabbi Hirsch do all his research? And to what length does he go to ensure absolute accuracy? So all will be revealed in tomorrow's behind-the-scenes clip, which shows a glimpse of what goes on into making these weekly podcasts, and we hope you enjoy it. We don't actually have the ability to post the video on a regular podcast but keep a lookout for tomorrow's podcast drop and you'll see it in the description below. Rabbi Hirsch, we'll see you next week. <laughs>